my wife, uh, I think affectionately, uh, often calls me a Mac snob. Uh, I, and, and she's not entirely wrong. I uh, write my sermons on a MacBook. I preach them uh, from an iPad. I do everything on my iPhone, and I check the time on my Apple Watch. I, I get it. Uh, but unfortunately, it gets even worse than that. Uh, because I am uh, not just that I use these products myself, uh, but that I often try to convert people to use these as well. And really, my track record has been pretty successful. I've got my mom and dad uh, to switch to iPhones and use iPads as their daily computers. Uh, I got my brother to switch several years ago after months and months of going back and forth on what uh, kind of phone was better. And uh, really, I think every member uh, of my family uses an iPhone now. I convinced our entire staff, those who already didn't to have iPhones, now have iPhones. And when Lisa needed a new computer a few years ago, you guessed it, she got a Mac. Uh, I, I know these products. I study them. I read about them. I, I, I look at the rumor mills to see what's going to come out uh, next. And, and, I, and when people have questions about them, they usually come to me or I'll get tagged on Facebook. But here's why I bring this up. Uh, because it's not really to my credit. In fact, it's more to my shame. Because why is it easier for me to share this than it is to share this? Why is it that I can convert more people to this than I can to this? Now, some of you might be thinking, <laughs> what do you mean you don't share the Bible? Like, it's like your job. You're doing it right now. And, and I get it. In a sense, you're right. But I also know, uh, to be totally tra transparent, sometimes it's easy to hide uh, my Christian atheism behind this pulpit. To, to think that I am sharing my faith simply because I do that for 25 to 30 minutes uh, on a Sunday morning. We've been in a, a series called uh, The Christian Atheist with this tagline of when you believe in God but live as if he doesn't exist. And this morning I want to look specifically at this idea of when you believe in God but don't share your faith. Now I, I know that this is not just something I uh, struggle with. If we're being completely honest, uh, for the vast majority of us, the idea of sharing our faith, tr really truly having a conversation with somebody where uh, we, we don't just say we're praying for them or, or offering them some encouragement, but really truly share the gospel with them, uh, the idea of that kind of gives us the cold sweats. We might share Bible verses on Facebook or, or pray for somebody in their time of need, but when it comes to sharing the full-fledged gospel, the, the true good news of why Jesus came and why we do what we do, why we worship on Sundays, why we live our lives and orient our lives around Christ. Uh, when it comes to sharing that, that's kind of a different story. And I understand uh, the apprehension. <laughs> Nobody sees a couple of guys walking up the driveway and thinks, yes, the Jehovah Witnesses are here to convert me. It's just, that's not how we react most of the time. And there's a number of barriers, I think, that we uh, either create or are just present that stop us from sharing our faith sometimes. Because I think kind of the, the primary one is, what, you know, what, if people, what if people don't like me? Because I don't want to be the, you know, the Bible guy that every time they see me, I'm just trying to, to push it down their throats. I don't want them to run when they see me. I don't want to be too pushy or I don't want people to stop hanging around me. And then to some degree, there is some truth to this. Uh, there was a book years ago called The Day America Told the Truth. And, and as part of this book, uh, Americans ranked and took a poll on all the different pr uh, professions according to their degree of integrity and honesty. 
And televangelists, uh, which uh, not all uh, evangelists, not all people sharing their faith are in the same category, but televangelists ranked lower than lawyers, politicians, car salesmen, car salesmen, and even prostitutes. In fact, out of 73 professions listed, only organized crime members and drug dealers scored lower than televangelists. There is this, this sense of, what if people don't like me when I share my faith? What if they're not interested in what I want to hear, and so they cut ties with me altogether? Or maybe your problem, though, isn't uh, that courage, but rather the knowledge. Often when it comes to sharing our faith, we think, what if I don't have all the answers? What if they ask me something I, I, I can't answer? What if I say something and I look stupid, or worse yet, make God look stupid? But still, maybe your problem isn't knowledge or courage, but opportunity. Maybe you simply just don't have any meaningful non-Christian connections anymore. I heard a statistic, startling statistic, several years ago, that within six years of becoming a Christian, most people lose any meaningful connection with non-Christians. Within six years of coming to Christ, most people have gravitated to Christian friends, leaving out meaningful connections with non-Christians. And I'll hear people sometimes you know, talk about their workplaces and say, I'm so blessed to, to work in a, a context where I'm surrounded by Christian people, uh, and it's just such a healthy work environment, and, and there is some truth to that. I mean, the joy and, and the, the camaraderie that comes from all uh, knowing that you serve Christ together, even in a job that isn't church-based, uh, can be a good one. But also think of the opportunities that we're missing out on. Uh, I think of myself, you know, I, I, working in a church, obviously. Uh, the, everybody here that I work with is a Christian. I'm around Christians on, on Sundays. My whole life is surrounded by church people. And I often envy those people who have opportunities just by virtue of where they work or what they do to have meaningful Christian connection. But still... I think more than any of these, the biggest barrier, that real issue that stands in our way is that we often underestimate the urgency. I think when it comes to our sharing our faith, the biggest thing, the biggest obstacle that stands in our way is that we ignore the reality that lost people are dying and going to hell. And I think we see this often in how we deal with death itself. We, we don't want to address that reality. I mean, you go to a funeral and, and somebody who's never really been in church, uh, or even openly lived their lives antagonistic to the gospel, will say things like, well, you know, she wasn't perfect, she made mistakes, but, you know, she had a good heart. Uh, there's, you know, somebody else, he wasn't a religious person, but deep down, he was a good person. And when's the last time you went to a funeral and the, the preacher said, you know, we know he's in a worse place now. It just, it doesn't happen. We don't want to own up and live up to the realities of what's at stake when it comes to sharing our faith. It's easier to dismiss the realities of what awaits those who never place their trust in Jesus. But when it comes to hell, I think we have to talk about it because Jesus talked about it. In Matthew chapter 13, uh, Jesus tells a parable, a story uh, about uh, this idea of what awaits those who haven't placed their faith in him. He kind of sets up the story of a, a farmer who plants a good and, and healthy wheat crop. 
And while he is sleeping, an enemy comes and he sows within this wheat uh, some weeds to destroy the crop. And so that when the harvest comes, uh, the wheat will be ruined, the wheat and the weeds will be all mixed together. And so there will be no way to separate them in the process of growing for fear of uh, tearing out the healthy uh, along with the weeds. And so the farmer decides to wait until the harvest to, to separate these two uh, different crops. And this is how Jesus explains his story. Matthew 13, verse 37, uh, the disciples have asked him what he meant. He says, he answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. We see this story, and in this story, we see what we see through the Gospels over and over again as Jesus warns people about the realities of eternal punishment in hell. He describes it as a place of fire, a place of darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth, a fiery furnace that will burn for eternity. But we also see that the worst pain of hell isn't any kind of physical pain but rather this idea of eternal separation from God. In 2 Thessalonians uh, 1, verses 8 and 9, uh, Paul says, When Jesus returns, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Paul says the, the greatest pain that will be felt in hell is the separation from God. And if this doesn't awaken within us the realities of what's at stake when we share our faith, then we don't understand what being separated from God really means. To be separated from His love, to be separated from His light and His joy and His peace, that everything good in the world that we've ever been given is stripped away and we're left in unimaginable agony and loneliness and isolation that never stops and never ends and never relents with no relief ever. If that doesn't cause us to give pause to the barriers that we construct to share our faith, I don't know what will. Because, of course, there is another way. I love the image uh, that Paul gives us in Romans chapter 3. He says that God is both just and justifier. That God is, is just, that God requires uh, justice to be held. That, that it's not just that God can look at our sin and ignore it, that there is a price that must be paid, a crime that is committed, a sentence must be passed down. God is just. But He's also justifier. That though God demands justice, He is the one who declares us right in His standing. And because He is just and justifier, we see God take what should have been our penalty upon Himself. That God, because He is so holy, can't be in the presence of sin, and so He became sin for us. That because sin had to be dealt with severely, He became one of us to pay the price that should have been ours. Jesus made a way out of hell by going through hell for us. 
He experienced the pain and the darkness and the weeping and the separation from God that should have been ours so that we wouldn't have to. And this is a good news worth sharing because hell isn't just about doctrines, it's about destinies. Hell isn't just something we talk about in the theoretical, it's about people's eternal lives being at stake. And if all we do is go to church on a Sunday and talk about what God has done for us in Jesus Christ and how because of his great love for us we've been deemed right in his standing, if all we do is talk about how we've been able to get out of the pain and darkness and weeping and separation that we deserve and that doesn't lead us to reach out to people with the same good news, then we've missed the point. You see, the reality is that each of us has the command, the responsibility, the charge, and should have the desire to share our faith. And so what we, can we do to be more uh, intentional about it? I want to encourage you to be very applicational with the rest of this sermon. Uh, and I want to encourage you even to write these strategies down uh, and just be praying through them. Just, just to be uh, looking at how God can use you with these different avenues, these different opportunities, how you can evaluate the people in your life that you might be able to uh, reach when it comes to sharing your faith. And the first thing I want to encourage you to do when it comes to sharing your faith uh, is just one, start in your circle. Start in the, in the group that you already live in. Usually when we think of evangelism or, or sharing our faith, uh, we have this image of like going out on Broadway and standing on this box with the cardboard sign that as people drive by, we're just telling them what's what. Or, or we have this idea of that we have to go up to random strangers just uh, in the store or, or go up to their doors and knock and, and begin to give them an, this sales pitch. I'm, you know, I'm here to sell you Jesus. But lost people, the best lost people that we can share our faith with, are probably the ones that we already share our lives with. All of us have people in our lives, whether they be coworkers or neighbors or family members or friends, uh, that we already know, that we already love, that they already have a relationship with us that probably don't know Jesus. And maybe it's a coworker uh, that's just in need of a word of hope. They've gone through a, a loss or a hard time, and we have the words that can speak hope into their lives. Maybe it's a family member who you just... Uh, because of virtue of you being related, have a unique opportunity to share truth with. Maybe it's a friend uh, that you've just had a, a friendship with, a relationship with for a long, long time, and you do things together and you have fun together, but you've never uh, got the opportunity or you've never taken the opportunity to talk seriously about your faith. Maybe it's a neighbor who lives alone uh, and they're lonely and they're hurting and all they need is for you to come over and, and talk with them, to, to build a life and a relationship with them. You see, when we start in our circle, when we start sharing our faith with the people that we already know, what we find is that the greatest foundations of sharing our faith is the relationships that already exist. And it gives us a unique opportunity that people know that we're not just speaking uh, you know, to them because we, we want to condemn them but rather because we love them. We get to lead with love and land with truth. And so I want to encourage you just to begin thinking about those people that are already in your circle uh, that, that you might not have shared your faith with but need to hear it. A second thing I want to encourage you to do when it comes to sharing your faith uh, is to invite somebody to church. In John uh, chapter 4, uh, we see a story that many of you are probably familiar with. 
It's the story of the woman at the well. Uh, If you don't know it, Jesus is passing through Samaria. And as a Jew, uh, this is something that most people would have done. Many of the Jews went around Samaria because there's racial tensions and, and ethnic tensions. But Jesus goes through, and as he does, he sits down by a well. And there's a woman there in the heat of the day when nobody else is around uh, gathering water. Jesus asks her for a drink and uh, she kind of scoffs because for any man, let alone a Jewish man, to speak to her would be simply out of the question. She says, you know, that I'm gathering water for myself. And he says, well, if you knew who was talking to you, I could have offered you living water. Water where you would never thirst again. And to this lady who comes every day to the well in the heat of the day to gather water, she is intrigued. She says, give me this water. If I don't have to come back here again, my life will be so much better. Before he offers her this water, Jesus says, well, why don't you go and get your husband? She clams up a little bit. She says, I I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, yeah, you're right. You've had five husbands, and the man you're living with now, you're not married to. And Jesus just begins to unpack her life. And he begins to shine the light of truth and grace into its dark corners. And this woman begins to realize that Jesus is no ordinary man. And what I find really remarkable about this is that this woman, John specifically says, is there at noon, at the hottest part of the day, when no one else is around because she wants to avoid everyone. And this woman, who's who's going through all these difficulties just to be by herself, suddenly runs off and begins to invite everyone to meet Jesus. It says, then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. What I like so much about this woman uh, is that she didn't have all the answers. She wasn't a scholar. Uh, she wasn't even uh, Jewish. She didn't have Uh, the enlightenment of God's full divine revelation in her life, but still, even though she didn't have her life figured out, even though she wasn't the squeaky clean example of moral living, she wanted people to experience Jesus. She wanted to invite them to experience the, the same grace and love that had been shown to her by this man. And I think like this woman, we can always invite people to experience Jesus. We don't have to have all the answers. We don't have to have our life in perfect order. We can invite them to experience Christ's love, to hear the good news of Christ or to experience His love through people by inviting them to church or, or a small group or a church event. It says after this woman invited uh, her town out to see them, it says many of the Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of this woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. It says, they said to this woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Because of a simple invitation. Because one woman said, I want you to experience what I've experienced in my life. People came to understand who Jesus really is, to acknowledge him as the Savior of the world. last thing I wanted to do and encouraging you to share your faith is just to share your own faith story, your own personal story. We actually saw an example of this earlier in our Christian Atheist series when Jesus healed a blind man. 
John chapter 9, Jesus uh, heals this man that's been blind from birth. And you might remember this kind of fight between Jesus and the blind man and the religious leaders kind of breaks out. This trial begins to happen as they're grilling this blind man about what happened in his life. And, and as they go back and forth, finally the blind man says, look, you know, I don't have the answers. They, be, they begin to claim Jesus is a sinner, and he says, whether Jesus is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. He says, look, I, I don't have all the answers. I don't know how I was healed. I don't know the, the scientific basis, the biology of what rearranged itself because of Jesus' miracle in my eyes. But one thing I know is that I couldn't see, and now I can I think we can do the same thing. We don't have to have all the answers to point to the evidence of how Jesus has transformed our lives. To be able to say, look, I was chained by addiction and I had no way out, but by the grace of God now I'm free. Or to say, I, I was running from relationship to relationship, pursuing love and meaning and purpose in all of the wrong places, but now I feel the love of a Savior that gave me everything I was always searching for. To say, I, you know, I came from a broken home, from a dysfunctional family, but Jesus is now showing me what it means to be a godly husband, a godly wife, and to raise godly kids. You know, to say, you know, I lost my husband or my wife, and it was the lowest point in my life, but God has given me this hope that extends beyond this world to a hope that lasts eternally. However we choose to share our faith, we have to share it. We have to because there's realities. The reality is that there are lives at stake, eternal lives at stake. 1 Peter 3, 15, uh, he says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And do this with gentleness and respect. However you choose to share your faith, I want to encourage you to take some time to prepare your answer. Then when somebody asks you, hey, why do you go to church? Why are you a Christian? Why do you live your lives this way? You have an answer because of the hope that you profess. There's too many lives at stake not to. Those of you uh, who know my son, who have seen him running around uh, after church, know that he is a busy kid. He is fast. He is everywhere all the time. Uh, and sometimes when we go outside, it just takes him a second to bolt down the driveway and head toward the street. And when this happens, of course, uh, as a loving father, I yell, you know, stop! Yeah, you know, and I chase after him and I try to grab him before he gets there. And if he gets in the street, I say, Chandler, you cannot run into the street. If you run into the street, you'll get hit by a car. If you run into the street, you could get very hurt. And mommy and daddy would lose you, and we don't want to lose you. The reality is that people every day in our lives are running into the street. They're headed for destruction and death, and we have the ability and the responsibility to warn them. Because when lives are at stake, we can't afford not to. So do we really believe what we profess to believe? Not just about the hope of heaven, but the realities of hell. And if we believe that, not just intellectually, but if, it, if we believe it practically, if the way we live our lives daily 
does it reflect the urgency of that belief? Because for me personally, if eternity were at the front of my mind more often, I'd probably pray a lot more about those who are distant from God. And I would spend a lot more time sharing my faith on a daily basis. And I'd, rather than, you know, amassing things for myself, I would use my resources to, rather than accumulate more and more, to use everything that we have to spread the gospel around the world. If we really truly believed that people's lives were at stake, how would it shape the way that we live and shape the way that we share? This morning I want to do kind of a twist on an old preacher trick. Because often preachers will say, you know, if you were to die right now, where would you go? And that's a valid question. But rather I want to say, if you were in heaven, who would you want with you? Who in your life would you want with you that you're not sure would be there? That's your person. Choose some way to share your faith with them. Begin praying for their hearts to be open, uh, for that ground to be ready and willing to be planted, for the seeds to be planted to take root and grow into a life of faith. I want to encourage you to share your faith, not because we've commanded, been commanded to, but because we truly want to, because we love people and we don't want to see them suffer eternally. Maybe for some of you, uh, before you can share your faith, you have to make your faith your own. Maybe you grew up in church uh, and you've lived your life kind of the church way, but you've never really allowed Jesus to take root and transform your life. Maybe you've never really allowed the realities of hell to shape the way you view lost people. Maybe you've never shared your faith because of all the barriers and the fears that we amass. So I want to encourage you during this time of invitation. I'll be up front, some of our elders will be in the back. We'd love to pray with you, to be an encouragement to you. And, and listen, this is not me saying, look, you've got to do what I always do because I am not as good at this as I should be. In fact, I would dare say that some of you are probably better about sharing your faith than I am. So this encouragement is not just for you, but it's for all of us. Because lives are at stake, and people we love are lost. Let's pray. Father, we know that this is a weighty topic. And God, I, I wrestled with as you know, preaching it because of what it means uh, for the way I live my life. God, I know that I don't share my faith the way I should. And I'm willing to bet I'm not alone in that. And so God, I pray that you would first of all give us eyes to see the world the way you see it. To see people who are lost, people that you love that are on the run from you, that are running into the street and somebody needs to say, stop. Somebody needs to grab hold of them and say, you're headed for destruction. God, I pray that you would allow us to start with people in our lives that we love and that we have a relationship with, the people that know that we want the best for them. So you can give us open doors to share our faith. God, I pray that you would not just let us leave this place and think, yeah, that's, that's too bad. 
but to truly evaluate our role as kingdom workers and gospel sharers. That we have this burden on our hearts to begin to pray adamantly and seek out ways that we can share our faith with others so they might know you and love you and experience you eternally. God, I pray that our church would be uh, a place that we would invite others to. That we don't have all the right answers, uh, we don't have all of the, the doctrinal things aligned, but to say, look, I've experienced Christ and we want you to as well. God, just give us a heart and a burden for lost people because you love them and you've asked us to love them. And we want to see them experience you, not just in the life here and now, but life eternal. I pray this in Jesus' name this morning. Amen.